We have sung of his grace. We have praised the Holy One. And now we come before him to hear from him uh, through his word. If you would turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Our text this morning will be verses 13 through 21. As is our custom, we are journeying through the Bible verse by verse. We will first pray, then we'll read the passage under consideration, then we will do an exposition of the passage, making observations and applications as we go. The title of this morning's message is No Unnecessary Burden. And I hope to not unnecessarily burden you this morning by preaching through the whole Bible, but I probably am going to. Uh, but one of the things that we, that marks a healthy church that we believe in in this church is having a biblical theology. That is, that, that the Bible tells one marvelous story from Genesis to Revelation. And as we come to a certain point in this passage, uh, there's a, there's a point there at which we need to have a, a good biblical theology. And so I will aim to do that. And so hopefully you will bear with me in the length of this, this, uh, sermon, as it seems like for only eight verses, it can't take that long. Uh, we'll see about that. Uh, so let us just, uh, pray together, please. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are a people who are dependent upon your grace. We are dependent upon grace to illuminate the passage to our minds, to inflame our hearts, to engage our will, Lord. May we be a people who are relieved, Lord, of any unnecessary burdens beyond the grace of God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we be those who proclaim and live the gospel of grace according to a knowledge of the truth. May we live that which accords with godliness. We pray, Lord, for those of genuine faith that will gather this morning at Old Town, We ask, Lord, that the gospel of grace be proclaimed in that church and here at Spring Hill Church clearly, correctly, compellingly, and concisely, Lord, all that your saving purposes would be accomplished. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you are uh, able, would you please stand for the reading of the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God from Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, and from blood. 
For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is God's word. Y'all may be seated. So we, we confess the gospel of grace and salvation. We confess that salvation belongs to the Lord. We confess that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we as Christians are to lay no unnecessary burden even upon ourselves and upon our confession. No unnecessary burden upon anyone else. Because we know this, that by the law, no one is saved. Knowing that truth, we know this also. Yet the moral law of God remains unchanged. What the law demands remains unchanged. But what is changed? What is changed is that by grace, through faith, the believer has a new relationship to the law. And this new relationship with the law does not decrease its demands. It does not decrease the demands, but actually in Christ, it expands the the commands to the highest moral ethic. Some people think of the law and grace as incompatible. It is by grace that we can fulfill the law, that in Christ, he having fulfilled it all, he actually takes the law and expands it and takes the moral ethic, the obligation of the Christian to an even higher level, even more. John Calvin writes this, The law is God's instrument of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. It is the school of faith by which the Holy Spirit leads us into conformity to God's will. And Jesus teaches us in the gospel that the moral law of God is not diminished by grace, but is in fact expanded in the Christian through faith. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he says, You have heard it said that those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Further on in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 27 through 30, he says this, You have heard it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body and be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you use one of your mem- lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So here we are. The law of Moses says this. And Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, right? And we, we, we think about grace and not to add anything. And, not, and the whole idea here is that I don't want us to get the idea of grace as, as having said that we are antinomianism, that, that, that we take on this idea of that the law does not apply to our lives. It does. The law applies to our lives and Jesus actually expands it. He takes the law of Moses. Moses says this. I say this. 
He takes it and expands it for us. But because He died for our sin, by grace He is enabling us to raise our lives to a higher moral ethic. Not dumbing it down. But now at the same time as we're going to look at this passage, we don't want to add anything to grace that is unnecessary. That is unnecessary. And I'm going to argue here that there is one thing necessary. One thing is necessary. And that is repentance and faith. So one thing is necessary in order for you and I, by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, to, to please God and fulfill the law in our own lives, to fill that high Christian ethic, it is one thing, and it is repentance and faith. And listen, I want you to hear this too, that it is not repentance one time and faith one time. It's not this idea that I repented once and I confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. No, it is an ongoing, daily process of repentance and faith. It is every moment, every day, every minute, repentance and faith. This is the one thing that is necessary. And now we're going to see here that that the question that we had raised last week in the beginning of chapter 15 was essentially this, is grace enough? Does the burden of ceremonial law need to be added to grace for a Gentile to be saved? And we saw also that the conclusion of the Jewish conservatives in Antioch, Syria was, yes, it is necessary. We must add this burden, this ceremonial law that Gentiles can't possibly be cleansed. They must be circumcised. They must have, must have this outward appearance of cleanliness in order to belong. So they send a group, including Paul and Barnabas, to inquire of the elders and apostles that are in the church in Jerusalem. They go there. Peter, uh, while he's there, he testifies that Cornelius and his family and his friends were cleansed from the heart by grace through faith. He testifies to this, and yet there's still much debate. And the opinion of the conservative Jewish uh, people there in, in the Jerusalem church was the same as it was in Antioch, Syria. It was, yes, there must be some sort of outward burden that we must place on them in order for them to be part of the family of God. And now we're going to pick up with the conclusion of the matter according to the leader of the Jerusalem church. And we're going to see that there's a difference between the leader of the Jerusalem church and the conservative Christians who were still married and tied into the synagogue and its rules. The church is, is a new way that God works in his people. And so we'll see that as we unfold this. I maybe went too far in explaining that, but here we go. So let's look at verses uh, 13 and 14. And we see in these two verses that the redemption of the Gentiles is affirmed. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Got to pay attention to some nuances here in this passage. Take a people, take from a people, a people for his name. Right? 
Pay attention to this. And so what's going on here is that after Paul and Barnabas related that God performed many signs, and these signs were an affirmation that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, James steps up and he here is going to give the conclusion of the matter. And it appears here that James is the recognized leader of the Jerusalem church. You might recall from our study earlier that when the Spirit released Peter from prison in Acts chapter 12, he himself seems to acknowledge the leadership of James in the church. In Acts 12 verse 17, But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. In Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, he too acknowledges the leadership of James. He states that Peter changed his behavior due to the arrival of James and his people in Galatians 2.12. He says, For before certain men came from James, this is talking about Peter, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So it seems here in, in Peter's mind and in the mind of those uh, here early Christians that the leader of the church in Jerusalem was James. And James had kind of the final word. He was kind of the spokesperson, right? And he is ready here to conclude the matter. James states this in conclusion to the matter, that, that Simon, Peter's testimony concerning Gentile conversion, he affirms that. He affirms that in that he relates how, how Simon related to them that, that God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. God visited the Gentiles to take them and take those from them that would be a people according to his name, that they would bear his name. Now, our human author here, Luke, uses the term visited often. In one sense, he, he uses it to describe the judgment of God upon a people. So when you think about God coming to visit us, in, in one sense, it's a scary thought, right? God comes to visit. God comes to visit. He's a judge. God is holy, right? I was just listening to R.C. Sproul's teaching on, on the holiness of God uh, yesterday. He's holy, 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 right? There, there's no doubt. It has to be repeated three times in, in Isaiah to get the idea of holiness. He's not just holy. He's holy, 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 right? Make, make no, no doubt that this God is holy. And if he comes to visit, it can be a fearful thing. But as Luke is relating it here in another sense, it's, it's to describe a sense that a visitation from God means that he has come to call a people to himself. That when God comes to visit out from all of the peoples that there are, there are some that he is bringing to be a people for himself. So when God comes to visit, and he comes to visit your heart, and he comes to visit my heart, that is great news, right? It is the best news possible. God has come to visit a people, and he's come to take those by grace through faith to be his. That is, that's the best news possible. But I think we need to, again, hold those two things kind of in balance, right? We need to hold those two things in, in tension with one another. 
He's, he's coming to call a people to Himself for His, His redemptive, saving purposes. The Old Testament has an understanding concerning those who belong to the people of God, right? And James is, is undoing that in a sense, right? He come to visit a people and to take from them a people for Himself by His own sovereign grace and choosing these people He's brung to Himself. And He's affirming this. This is what Peter teaches. Peter, Peter has just said that Cornelius was cleansed from the heart by grace through faith. There was no other burden laid upon him. God had visited those people and, and brought them to himself. This is what James is, is affirming to the crowd, right? Who would, who would want to impose some sort of um, obligation, some unnecessary burden upon them. And the Old Testament understanding concerning those who belong to the people of God are described as God taking them as a possession for himself as well. Exodus 19, 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Exodus 23, 22. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 14, 2, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 26, 18 and 19. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for His treasured possession as He promised you and that you're to keep all His commandments and that He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor above, uh, high above all nations that He has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as He promised. So this visitation is God coming to take a people for Himself and He says this is what He has done with the Gentiles. That out of, out of, out of all of these Gentile nations, some of them God has taken to be a treasured possession. He has visited them to redeem them, to make them His. By what? Did He take them to be His and say, here's a burden that you must lay, I must lay upon you, that if you do these things. No, it is, it is simply obedience in faith to repent and believe and and he has taken these people to be his possession his treasured possession by his sovereign choice and through by his grace and through faith the coming of Christ is described in Luke's gospel as a visitation it's described as a visitation for redemptive purposes and James concludes that the Gentile converts have been visited by God making them a possession for his name just as he did for the people of Israel in Luke 168, it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Luke 178, because of the tender mercy of our, our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Luke 7:16, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. They understand that the coming of Christ is the visitation of God. For what purpose? For his redemptive purpose, to bring a people to himself. The leader of the Jer Jerusalem church affirms the testimony of Peter. The Gentiles, he says here, in no uncertain terms, belong to the people of God. They are his treasured possession by grace, through faith. 
They have been cleansed from the heart. They've been cleansed from the inside out. Right? And you know how those conservative Jews were. They always thought about polishing the cup, right? We polish the outside. The inside is filthy as filthy can be. But we polish the outside of the cup and therefore we're good. And the same idea is if they want to lay this burden of circumcision on them, they're saying, that is an outward appearance, right? Get that cleaned up and you are cleansed. This is no, by grace, through faith, God cleanses one from the inside out. And when you are cleansed from the inside out, can you not then fulfill the law of God outwardly? Then why would you lay some unnecessary burden on top of it, this outward thing, right? So he affirms this. And then he says, further, James says, the prophetic word affirms this to be true. Verse 15, and with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of humankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Well, here he says something great. And this is what the whole Bible teaches in the whole. This is, this is why I, I think I'm going to unfold the whole Bible right here for, in one instance, in one sense. At the end of the Bible, it says this, the dwelling place of God is with man. Right? That's the ultimate. The dwelling place of God is with man. Well, remember, in, in progressive revelation, that the dwelling place of God, the intimacy, the intimate connection with God was lost to sin. In Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Sin had caused this loss of God dwelling with man. In intimate connection, it had been lost. And so you know throughout history, God's presence was, was displayed uh, in certain ways that God was with his people in the temple, but only something of God's presence, right? In the temple, in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 4, it says, And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter, the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then from the temple, God's presence was known in the tabernacle in Exodus 40. Verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able, able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, 
and fire was in it by night in all the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And then he set this up and he says that, that in King David, on the throne would be one who would, who would usher in the presence of God this, this tent would be fulfilled by the one who comes after David in this forever kingship. The forever king is coming. And it's coming first in the, in the person of David. And, and, and they refer that to his, as David's tent. In Isaiah 16, 1 through 5, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the heat of noon. Shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So this is a forecast of this time where the faithful one will sit in the tent that will we will be able to be in the presence of God forever in the tent of David that is in the person of Jesus Christ ultimately, right? Then we, we also see that the prophetic word made flesh comes to us in that person of Jesus. In John 1, 12 through 14, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then ultimately, the Bible concludes this presence of God, this God dwelling with His people, of Him visiting them and taking them as a possession to dwell with them forever, ever. It is consummated in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So he's saying a lot here when he says, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. He's saying that the word of God, the prophet Amos is affirming what Peter says. And Peter says that God has come to visit these people, Gentiles, cleansing them from the inside out, that he has taken them as a treasure to himself, laying no other burden on them save repentance and faith, we will see. And he says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, verse 17, and all the Gentiles who are called by name, my name says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. Without distinction. These are a people without distinction, without human distinction. God distinctly chooses them. God distinctly visits them. God distinctly gives them, by grace, faith. By grace gives them repentance. And they are His 
people. James states that the prophets affirm that God dwells within a people. His people are the remnant of all of mankind. Think about this, a remnant of all of mankind. Because he says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. That is, those whom God has visited, whom God, by grace, through faith, has chosen for himself to be a people for himself. Those that remain, the remnant, are those who have not rejected God's rule and authority, but those whom God has chosen and granted them faith in Jesus Christ, and he does so without distinction. James states that he concurs with Peter and with the prophetic word of God that the time of Gentile inclusion is now. This is the conclusion of the matter. This is what he's, he's, he's going to ask them to write and bring back, that the Gentiles are indeed included, that God has made no distinction apart from faith. No unnecessary burden is to be added to the gospel. No unnecessary burden. In Galatians 5, 5 and 6, Paul will take the meaning of the counsel uh, that the church is, is going to send, what James is going to send. He's going to take the meaning to state that there's no distinction apart from faith, no unnecessary burden added to the gospel, as he says in verses 5 and 6 of Galatians 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's his conclusion to the matter. He takes James' words and he says, I concur with this, and this is what I would bring to the church. This is to tell them, no unnecessary burden be added other than repentance and faith and love for God. No unnecessary burden. What is necessary? What is necessary? Verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So we ask ourselves, what about the moral law of God? Are Christians to continue to live in any manner they choose, even at the expense of violating the holy, pure, and righteous law of God? even at the expense of violating the holy God himself. Because after all, we're under grace. After all, Jesus fulfilled the law. So then are we free to live any old way that we want to? Paul will later say, God forbid. God forbid that would show a sign that you are not really converted from the inside out, that you've not really been cleansed. Repeating what, that quote from John Calvin, the law is God's instrument of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. It is the school of faith by which the Holy Spirit leads us into conformity to God's will. I think Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is helpful here. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want us to be clear here that James is not advocating an antinomian attitude concerning the moral law of God. He's not saying get rid of the law completely, right? What he is saying is, is that the law of God in the converted person's life is not there to lay some unnecessary burden upon them, right? Don't apply more to salvation than the ethical moral law of God commands. Don't apply more than the moral ethical law of God requires. And he says here, but for conscience sake and for a relationship with our Jewish Christian brothers, don't cause offense. That is the admonition here. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That is, lay no unnecessary burden on them, right? But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So initially it is, don't be offensive to your Jewish brothers in Christ who have such hard convictions about these things. But for conscience sake and for relationship with them, don't cause an offense. In the presence of those who think an idol is anything, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols for conscience sake. James then makes reference to two laws in Leviticus. I'm thinking, I won't read all of them, but he makes reference to them in uh, Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 18. I'll read them anyway. It's just better to hear what God's word says exactly, right? Um, Leviticus 18, 6 through 18. He says, None of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife, she is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her of her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. So all of that is to say this. And there's a biblical sexual ethic, right? That he's saying, don't violate this, this biblical sexual ethic. That is important, right? It is important not to violate that. And he also says concerning blood, right? So he has, he has this statement here in verse 20, things polluted by idols. So we're talking about food and those kinds of things, right? I'm talking about for conscience sake, don't do those things. Then he says that, that 
things strangled and from blood, right? Sexual immorality and things from strangled from blood, right? So he's saying these two things are moral issues. These are two big moral issues. That there's a moral sexual ethic that must lay no burden on them, no outside burden, but make them aware that there is a biblical sexual ethic and that there is a concern about life. Right? Those are the two big issues of the day, in our day, right now, as we stand right here. As we navigate this world, there are two huge issues today. And that is, is there a moral sexual ethic? Is there one? The world that tells us, no, there isn't. However you feel, whatever you want, that's what you do. Do that. And you Christians are pretty uptight about those kinds of things, right? Let people be people and let them do what they want. They're violating the moral law of God. And then when we think about life, life is in the blood, right? These two issues, they'll always come up. And and now we're going to see probably in the next election that there's these two issues that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody's going to want to talk about these two issues because they know that it's half and half. That the country is totally divided, right? You bring up these two issues and, and we're divided for sure. There are those who, who stand for a biblical, uh, moral ethic sexually. And there are those who say that life begins at conception, that all of life is given by God and that we should not destroy life in any way. And yet now these two issues are, have come together. They've come together in a sense, uh, concerning this idea that if a child comes to an adult and says, I don't feel like I'm a girl. I don't feel like I'm a boy. What do we do to that life? Right now they say, go to a doctor and get mutilated. Go to a doctor and let him mutilate you. Adults. Adults are saying this to our children. They're saying the logical step is that if you don't feel like this, go to a doctor and let him mutilate you. Let him destroy you. I think these two issues are are right up front today, right? And James here says, there is a biblical sexual ethic Life belongs to God and God alone. And in those two things, you need to adhere to the law of God, but add no other burden. And when you think about the election, I remember at a conference I went to with R.C. Sproul, and they said, could you vote for a Democrat? Could you vote for this other candidate? And R.C. Sproul very succinctly and intelligently sits there and responds and he says, what matters is where do they land on marriage and where do they land on life? And I don't care what label they have because I have many other things to think about, but, but those two things are at the heart of what God desires. There's a 
biblical sexual ethic. And God is the giver and taker of life, period. Those are the two big issues in our lives. When we think about what is being said here in verse 20, abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood, later scribes uh, revised this and they reworded the forbidden things. And they omitted this were this, this idea of things strangled because they, they left three words which can be understood in a moral sense. In a moral sense, tell these people to refrain from worshiping idols. Idolatry. Tell them to remain pure sexually. And tell them that the taking of life is murder. The taking of life is murder, no matter how you slice it, right? The proponents of abortion, what do they say to us? Well, it's not life. Well, they say, well, it's not life. And so therefore, they're vindicated in themselves to murder babies. It's really what they're saying. If I don't call it life, then I, I can kill whoever I want. It's still murder. Murder is murder. Well, this alteration probably made by the scribes is because they no longer understood what the first century issue was for the Gentiles, right? For what they were about. They're, they're just looking at the word of God and they're saying, well, you know, it's, it, it's given that nothing should be added to salvation except that the moral law of God still stands. So over time, uh, they had no need to prescribe things about food that are acceptable to Jewish Christian conference, uh, conscience. And, and they disappeared because the word of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ by grace through faith affirmed this, that there's no unnecessary burden needs to be added to the converted, but that the moral law of God still stands. And James affirms that the testimony of Peter, the prophetic word of God, and this is the council's Conclusion of the matter. So James is concluding, concluding here, lay no unnecessary burden upon these people. What is necessary? What is necessary? What is necessary for you? What is necessary for me? Repentance and faith. That's what is necessary. What is necessary is repentance and faith. Nothing else outwardly needs to be added. And how do you know that you have repented and believed? Because as a believer, you have started to fulfill the moral law of God. Right? You have started to fulfill the moral law of God. The biblical sexual ethic has become your sexual ethic. The treasure of human life that God has, has become your treasure. No need to polish the cup, brothers. No need to mutilate yourself for the sake of being included in the people of God. No need to find some way to outwardly cleanse yourself in order to be accepted by God. It is by grace through faith that God has cleansed you from the inside out. 
And now as we read verse 21, it seems like an oddly phrased verse. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So he's making this conclusion, send them a letter, laying no extra burden on them other than, than keeping the moral law of God, right? By faith. And then he says, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. It seems oddly phrased. It seems ambiguous in its meaning. On one hand, uh, the meaning may be regarded as saying, since there are Jews everywhere who regularly hear the law of Moses being read in the synagogues, Christian Gentiles ought to respect their convictions and by their liberty don't be offensive and stain the church's reputation. Don't stain the church's reputation in the synagogue. That is in one way what he is talking about here. Since, since the moral law of God is being read in the syn uh, synagogues, right? Christian Gentiles ought to respect their convictions and by their liberty, uh, don't be offensive and don't stain the church's reputation by being offensive. Another angle might be this, that if Christian Gentiles want to find out any more about the Jew Jewish law, they have plenty of opportunity. They have plenty of opportunity to understand the Levitical law of God to understand those things because every week in the local synagogues, they're talking about it. So if you want to know more, there's a place to know. One thing that I couldn't help but thinking here, and he says, and then he kind of says, in a sense, and there's no need for the Jerusalem church to say anything about the matter of what goes on in the synagogue. There's no, there's no rule from the synagogue to say what goes on in the church, right? And I couldn't help but think as I was praying through this, this statement that comes out these days is stay in your lane. I couldn't help but thinking about that idea of staying in your lane. For matters that concern the church, the church has authority. For matters that the synagogue has concerning uh, their authority. They have authority of the things that they're concerned with. Let the church be the church and the synagogue be the synagogue. It's kind of how this statement reads as you, as you wrap your head and heart around that, right? Let the church be the church. Let the synagogue be the synagogue. On issues of conduct in the church, the church has authority. On the conduct of at, at outsiders, even the church ought to say this, stay in your lane. We have some expectations sometimes, right? that non-Christians who live near us will act like Christians. They don't. They don't. We have this expectation that they, they will, and, and then we make some requirement on them. Well, you can come to church if you do this or you do that or if you think this way or if you change your mind about this or if you vote this way like I do, right? Stay in your lane. The conduct of outsiders is not in your power. The conduct of outsiders is in the power of the Holy Spirit. What is in your power? You have the gospel of Jesus Christ to proclaim to them. That's within your power. Proclaim the truth, but trust that non-believers cannot conduct themselves according to the moral law of God. So don't be shocked when heathens act like heathens. Right? Don't be shocked. Non-believers cannot in themselves conduct themselves according to the moral law of God. Not completely. 
In some way, they might be able to polish the cup on the outside, right? They might be able to, to adhere to some rules, to follow some regulations, but they can't fulfill the moral law of God in their heart. Why? Because they don't believe. They have not been granted by grace through faith the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. Heathens are going to heathe, right? I've heard people say it that way. Heathens going to heathe, right? They're just going to. Well, the conclusion of the matter is for the unbeliever, we place no uh, greater burden on them than this. Repent and believe. Repent because 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's our claim. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That should cause one to be undone. It should cause us moments of reflection. Where do I have unrighteousness still left in my life? Am I inheriting the kingdom of God? Have I been cleansed from the inside out, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness? Right? Repent and believe. Because in Christ, Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to, send the mind, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile for God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Is there any statement clearer that in the flesh we cannot please God? But in Jesus Christ, we can and we do. Man, it's a red-letter day if you get that, if you get that, especially when you mess up. I, you guys probably don't ever mess up. But if you mess up and you're on your face in prayer before God and you go, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, I fulfill everything that God expects of me. He has done it all. He has cleansed me from the inside out. He is conforming me into the likeness of His Son daily, moment by moment. I don't live there anymore. Yes, I messed up, but I don't live there anymore. I have been declared free by God through grace, by faith. As Pastor Elder Joe stated last week in celebration of the Lord's Supper, we long to know nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. We place no unnecessary burden upon you. One burden, one burden is necessary. 
And that is to repent and believe.